Hello and welcome. My name is Alex MacPhail and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams, what makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Good afternoon and welcome to you once again. I have a fantastic show lined up with, for you today. My good friend, Francois Allison, he is a veteran of Air Force, all things helicopters and flying instruction. He's currently serving as an airline pilot with the British Airways Comair and the Kalula brand as well. Before we dig in there, there's a quote I want to share with you briefly. Motivation gets you going, but discipline keeps you growing. It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you. Fran, welcome to the show. Wonderful to see you. And uh, how are you keeping busy today in lockdown? Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, I've been following your series, so it's great to be on. Lockdown, yeah. It came at us uh, first slowly and then quickly. And I haven't left the house for seven days. So getting to all those projects that we've been uh, putting off for all that time. So a bit of gardening, but in the garage, you know. Keeping busy. It's a good time with the family as well. That's great. Well, good to hear that you keep yourself busy. So, Fran, I want to just start way back in the beginning. You know, we go a long way back. Uh, way back in the beginning, 20-odd years ago, we did basic military training together onto uh, officers' training and then the flying training course, what we call pupes course. T- tell me, why do you think that uh, Air Force flying courses starts with basic military training? Is that necessary? Well, yeah, that takes us back, eh? way back in the 90s. <laughs> I think it's definitely necessary. Um, military flying is quite unique that you're going to have to work with uh, your fellow aviators and also in a team with, with the rest of the armed forces. So I think it's great to be used as screening, basic military training, officers training. And uh, that will suss out maybe some of the candidates which shouldn't be there. They can either pursue other careers or other flying uh, disciplines or other avenues for that. So I think it's definitely important. Uh, You'll remember Major Leon Berger down in Langoban also telling us once uh, that the Air Force is actually quite unique in their officers or their pilots are officers. And this is the only branch of service that we go to make war with officers at the front line. So, yeah, that, I think that is also quite unique. Yeah, it's true. And um, obviously, as you mentioned, it, it instills a certain level of, uh, of uh, confidence. And uh, when you, the final output, the product at the end is a, is a certain baseline level of competence. But um, so if we go back into specifically the, the Air Force flying training, you know, we, we talk about these high-performance teams and how they like to prepare, like to execute with precision and review. If you think back to your flying training um, as a student pilot, what are the things that kind of stands out on the pupes course and the discipline? And, uh, and how do you see that, that role? I mean, it's been, it's been the same for nearly 100 years and all sorts of air forces around the world. What is your take on the, the way air forces train their pilots, particularly in the flying training course? Well, yeah, uh, that's, that, like you mentioned, going back uh, already 20 years and it's been going for 100 years, so we've been part of it for quite some time. Uh, I believe, you know, on the training side, uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary for, for that discipline to, uh, to be part of that training. On PUPE's course itself, uh, it, it was quite tough. I mean, uh, there was no excuses. You had to perform, you had to prepare every day for your sortie. Uh, I mean, 
your instructor would ask you questions and I mean I still believe it is the case you get some of those questions wrong you're going to run around the Harvard and you're going to come back tired and <laughs> you would have had some time to think about that question and tomorrow I promise you're going to prep twice as hard so no it's it's uh, very important that type of discipline uh, yeah so I've uh, obviously yourself included you know we've we've got friends and colleagues all over the world operating in airlines and all parts of the globe and some of them are joining us now I see some people Albert says hello my dudes and thanks for joining us Albert we've got people saying hello Willem and Franco and Tendu and, and Nuwati thank you for joining us um in my time, having traveled quite a lot as well as an airline pilot and, and mingled with a lot of Air Force, um, you know, past Air Force pilots or even some current Air Force pilots, I've met up with people from the Swedish Air Force, from the Royal Air Force, from the Croatian Air Force, uh, hello Demir, and from the Australian Air Force, the New Zealand Air Force, the United States Air Force. The, the training program seems to be the training program and that mold seems to fit and it, and it delivers a consistent output and I suppose that's why it hasn't changed too much. But if we look at your particular line, so you spent the bulk of your time in the helicopter line and then you spent another serious chunk of time in flying instruction. So I want to just uh, pop up this picture here of the Augusta 109. Here's a picture of you standing in front of this um, 109. Tell us a little about this picture here. I see you got there. looks like a sniper rifle. I see some very mean looking people in this picture. Tell me a bit about helicopter operations as it relates to this 109. Well, that was actually quite a unique uh, opportunity we had there operating with the armed forces and the special forces. Okay. So completely different from our normal operations. Uh, you know, we'd go out and train with the special forces on this would be the uh, sniper segment of their training. So we go out to a undisclosed location, might be not too far from here. Yeah? They call the, the kill house. Wow. And uh, they would go through their normal sniper operations and what was unique they would actually have to one facet of that cause to try and conduct sniper operations from the LUH the light utility helicopter as a base as a platform wow. and I promise you you are you are sitting at those controls because they are wanting you to maintain a certain speed a certain height wind sun everything in the right direction there for them to be able to take that accurate shot and i can i can tell you not many people pass that course and it is extremely difficult one of the hardest uh, parts of their training that uh, they've they've come to tell me afterwards and uh, yeah it was quite interesting spending a couple of days with them there going through that training and providing that platform for them okay so this sounds like a real uh, your part to play in this high performance output uh, also probably adds an element of stress for you knowing that the, somebody else's career may be depending on you and that will just give you that little boost again to just deliver the best you can deliver so i mean i've got another i was digging into the archives earlier and i've got another great photo here i see some old people uh, on the either side with very gray hair it looks like an oryx helicopter <laughs> in the back and I see a very skinny, young-looking uh, Fran Allison in the middle. Tell me, what's going on in this picture of these two old folk? Looks like, is that Madiba and Bill Clinton? Well, what's yeah. happening? Yeah, that's, that's quite, uh, that's how diverse our, our helicopter operations can be. I mean, uh, other air forces, I believe, have got helicopter operations and they would, like, would be specifically search and rescue. They would have a squadron and they would do search and rescue. Now, South African Air Force, we don't have the luxury of having a squadron for each discipline. So we'd be doing search and rescue one day, sniper training the other day, and the next day you'd be doing uh, some VIP operations. Uh, so this is exactly what uh, what you see there. Yeah, IFM, that's, uh, that is Mandela. We, we used to call it the Shambhala Shuffle. He was writing his, his book, The Long Walk to Freedom, uh, about hours flying north of Pretoria. So we would pick him up 
at Brantarian or wherever the case might be. He was living in Santon at the time, I believe, as well. Pick him up, take him off to Shambhala. He'd spend the weekend there, spend a week there writing. And on one of these occasions, uh, Bill Clinton actually wanted to come and visit. So the two ex-presidents there, we took him on some... Uh, some game viewing there, and we dropped him off again and uh, had a bit of an interaction there. I must tell you, Bill Clinton, one of the funniest guys I've, I've met, <laughs> joking around, having some shades on there at night. And within Madiba, I promise you, it was, it was magic. And uh, yeah, it was quite fun to be part of all those different operations. Well, I'm sure that's a memory that you're going to treasure forever. I mean, I know there's people that would just like to be in the same room as uh, the former president. Uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, certainly Bill Clinton carries a, a sort of an image around him too that the people, you know, that they've seen, he's sought after in public engagements now today. So what a privilege and a pleasure. I'm sure you've had some wonderful times uh, flying in helicopters, particularly this kind of VIP, but also the diverse uh, maritime and fast roping and all those fun things. But to just move off a little bit of helicopters at the moment, um, I'm going to put a picture up now for the viewers. There's a picture of the two Astros just off the coast of Cape Town and another one of our good friends, uh, Ryan Cocaine. I'm not sure if he's joined in today. He's flying in that number three, the second airplane. And this was just a nice photo that the, uh, the Pilatus um, aircraft company, they used. They have nice pictures for their calendars every year. And this was a picture that was taken. So tell us a little bit about your time then as a flying instructor. Um, maybe you can start anywhere you like, somewhere from the beginning of learning to become a flying instructor giving flying instruction to students. And I know later on you ended up teaching other qualified Air Force pilots how to become flying instructors and to get the best out of their students. Sure. Yeah, that was a great time to go back to. Obviously, we learned to fly on the Astra. And then, uh, well, seven, eight, nine years later, I went back to Longaban for about a five-year instructor's tour, which was awesome, I must tell you. And you hear that from uh, many pilots and instructors. You only really learn how to fly once you're giving the instruction. You get into the nitty-gritty, the nuances of how the aircraft handles. You can apply some aerodynamics because you're teaching that aerodynamics every day. I mean, never true. I mean, uh, power plus attitude equals performance. Never used to make sense to me as a pupil. I mean, you just did what you needed to do to get through. But uh, teaching it, it was, uh, it was incredible to, to dive deeper into our discipline. And, uh, yeah, teaching uh, flying instructors later on was also a great privilege. They talk about the, the instructor-student relationship. So on the first level is like the normal instructor and the student with zero experience. But then uh, ramping it up a notch, the, the instructor instructor and the, instru the, the, the student's instructor, yeah. you'd have uh, the same type of um, relationship there. So you're going to have to almost like teach him the, the tricks of the trade. Uh, I was referring earlier to one of my um, – Instructor manuals, or actually one written by Pilatus, and they refer to it as the guild still, throwing it okay. back to the 14th and 1400s. Like they talk about the master craftsman sure. uh, imparting the knowledge, word of mouth, one-on-one uh, -on -one onto the apprentice. And, you know, uh, going back to the discipline that you, you mentioned earlier on, I mean, the, the, the master craftsman really lives the craft, and sure. the apprentice wants to become like that instructor and, you know, just live to that expectation. So it's, it's, it was wonderful to be part of that uh, the central flying school for, for those, those many years. Well, that's great. And I know you enjoy uh, this master craftsman uh, experience that you're big into your woodwork and diving into leatherwork. And I hope that you end up with, uh, with some master skills and some hands-on hands -on techniques and tips that you can share. I just want to dive in. There's some people asking us some questions here. People are saying hello from Germany, I see. Uh, what he wants to know, what question did you ask Bill 
And uh, also, what's the difference between civilian instructors and Air Force flying instructors? Well, what, yeah, I can't recall exactly now what uh, what uh, question I asked Bill at the time. A couple, and I had some good laughs and some some great <laughs> we'll conversation there with him. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. And uh, you, you mentioned Air Force versus airline flying. Is that it? Uh, no, he wants to know the difference between civilian instructors and Air Force instructors. Do you notice anything? Does some, anything uh, pops at the top of your mind? We can come back to that a little bit later on as well. But while you're thinking yeah. about that, um, I know towards the end of your time at Langebaan, you spent a, a good chunk of time as a, as a flying instructor and giving back to the Air Force. And uh, you speak very highly of it. We talk about it regularly too. We crossed paths again at Langebaan and that was fantastic. You, you were quite involved in the, the upgrade program of the Astra now, the, the Astra was uh, kind of a unique aeroplane which was sold to the South African Air Force. We wanted to change a few things, so Pilatus then tweaked and changed an already working model to make a special aeroplane. But many years later, it was time for this tweak to now be upgraded, and that upgraded, and now you were a central uh, player in that thing. Do you want to talk us through that upgrade project? Was it called Project Astra? I can't remember the detail exactly. And, and how you approach it and how it ended up in your plate and, you know, what, is the, what does that project look like? Well, that's interesting, Pilatus. Um, quick sideline story. Many years later, whilst I was uh, fly started flying for Airlink, one of our simulators was close to the Pilatus factory. Went for a factory tour. It was amazing. And uh, in Stans, the guy spent some mm. Stans there. The guy who, uh, actually spent three years in Langebaan, South Africa, when I was an instructor there. He gave us a factory tour, and he gave me a tidbit of information which I didn't know at the time. He said. When the Air Force uh, ordered 60 Astra Air, uh, aircraft, the, the PC-7 Mark II, it actually was the deal that saved Pilatus ah. from going under at the time, Wow, which was uh, terribly interesting. So uh, it's good to, to know that bit of a history as well. So they've got a very much a soft spot for the South African Air Force. But with regards to the upgrade, the midlife upgrade of the Astra, uh, it, it involved basically avionics suite, up, uh, suite upgrade. And um, that was very interesting. Um, I went on the OTE course, the Operational Test and Evaluation course at Bredasdorp in uh, Tierforce. And that uh, then qualified me to take on a big chunk of this project, uh, which was great fun. It involved a lot of test flying, evaluating the systems, even sometimes at, uh, you know, you had to test the lighting in the cockpit. They throw like a duvet over the canopy and try and make it as dark as possible. Tweak if you can military flying, you know, you want to turn those lights down as low as possible. Uh, lots of interesting stuff like that. But uh, yeah, the, the test flights were fun. Each aircraft, as it was, uh, they had to take the wing off, do all the avionics upgrades, all the up, different upgrades that they do, put the wing back on, reassemble the aircraft. So that was actually like uh, off the production test flight again. Three hours testing it in and out. Uh, sometimes we spill over to two sorties, but um, working with the flight test engineers as they they would come along for the ride in the back seat, oh, scribbling away on the 27-page uh, <laughs> test form. Sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if anything was was a miss, you'd have to go out again after they fixed it. Uh, but yeah, that was that was great being part of that midlife upgrade. Oh, I'm sure it was a, a pleasure. It was just after my time there and uh, I missed out on that, but it was a lot of fun flying those airplanes. So somebody has asked now, Franco has joined us and he's asked now, particularly on the Astra, with this 800-odd horsepower Astra um, and a high-performance machine, obviously that's geared for military flying, etc. cetera. Uh, how, you know, the rest of the civilian world start on a Cessna 150 with, uh, you know, 100-odd horsepower. How difficult is it to do ab initio training, bearing in mind that you have such a powerful machine? 
It is, it is quite difficult. And I could almost say, Joy, into that earlier question that you asked about the difference between military and civilian instruction, because I've now seen almost like all four sides of the coin there. Uh, quite overwhelming uh, initially. First sortie GF1. You are strapping on a G-suit. You are strapping on a helmet. You've got oxygen. It mm. is uh, quite intimidating. It is a very complex cockpit at the time. So going out for GF1 is, is not Mickey Mouse. Uh, but, I mean, that's just what you train on and that's what you get used to. And, and you roll with the punches and by, obviously, the, the 15th, 16th sortie, it's a bit more hours than, than civilians to go solo. You've pretty much got it down and, and you progress from there. With regards to the civilian side, I've got, uh, well, I don't want to say limited experience in the civilian side. We've been flying civilian <laughs> for the last five years. But on the instruction side, I had to go and do multi-engine. Uh, I had to build my multi-engine hours. And the one way I could do that was through instruction. I was now an experienced instructor. I had sure. to go back onto a Baron. So that was now a piston aircraft. Uh, okay. Really completely different. So on the Astro, very simple. You have a PCL, the power control lever, a big fat black lever in your left hand. You go faster and you go slower. And that's it. Climbing into sure. that batter, now you've got like six levers staring at you. you, know, you <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how, how, which, which one do we push? Which one do we pull? So quite complex going from turbine back to piston was actually more complex for me at the time. Adding in it was a twin and you've got now mixture and pitch to worry about. So... Sure. Uh, Ross, a little bit maybe about the instruction, but with the military side, you have a huge, huge system and experience behind you. So the infrastructure is there, the whole setup. So uh, it's it's quite easy, would I say, to to give a very high level of training there because you've got all the support systems in place. Giving instruction later on outside in the civilian world. You don't have as much support. You need to know the regulations by yourself. You need to find those test forms. You need to uh, manage the progress of the student, I I would say, almost by yourself. Uh, Luckily, I had some experience in that, so I could apply that. But you do not have as big an infrastructure behind you and some safety nets and uh, some people you can just look up to and say, what do we do with this? And support system, you know, systems are in place already. This big machine called the Air Force, uh, there's been rules and procedures that have been going for many, many, many years, decades, in fact. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense how you've compared the two there. Uh, Before we're going to get back to to Murray's question just now, Chris is saying, how do you, can you explain how to do a stall turn? Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us. We'll get to the stall turn in a minute. We're going to step off and start talking a little bit about airline flying in a minute. Um, if you want to just answer Chris's, uh, Chris's question about a stall turn, then we'll dive into 737 flying. Wow. Uh, I think each <laughs> aircraft is maybe a bit different. It throws me back into my instruction days. Um, I, this, is, this is exactly what, what instruction is like. First, I'd have to gauge what my student is at and to see what is known at this stage to take him from the known to the unknown. So difficult for me to take Chris uh, <laughs> at what level he is. Does he have does he have PPL commercial maybe? Oh, sorry, I didn't let you know. This is, this is Chris Ferreira. So we, we can take it that Chris Ferreira knows how to fly an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always knew Chris had a bit of difficulty with any aerobatics there. That's why I went transport. But uh, <laughs> no, on the, on the instruction uh, on the instruction of a stall turn, you'd want to hit your markers 200 knots on the way down, steady 3 to 4G, coming back on the control column, 
pitching up, 80 degrees nose up. Now you want to change your reference to the left wing in particular. You can get a lot of information from that wing against the horizon. If you want to see 80 degrees nose up on your ADI, you're going to look left and you're going to pick up where that wing is now 80 degrees with that horizon. You want to watch your speed, wing tip as the speed starts coming down. You want to maybe through 60 knots move in steadily, a lot of left rudder. And you're having a look at that uh, horizon. You want your nose to actually fall through that point on the horizon that you picked. Back down again, hold that attitude steady, wait for, anticipate 200 knots, pull out of the dive. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Fran, on the spot, uh, having not given instruction in a stall turn for possibly up to six years now, has given it to you straight <laughs> off the bat. All right. Felty says hello. Hello, Felty. Thanks for tuning in. Let's uh, dive in now. I'm going to show a picture of your current ship at the moment that looks to me like a Boeing 737NG from Kalula landing in George. I think one of your family members took a nice photo of you the last time you flew in there. Was it in January or sometime there? The nice green Kalula aircraft. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you've transitioned now from the military background of flying and, and how has that assisted you and your experience at Kome? I know there's a, quite a significant uh, percentage of the, of the pilots at Kome are military background. Um, how, how has that stood you in, 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 has it stood you in good stead? Uh, do you relate easily? Compare your Air Force life to now flying a Boeing 737. Yes, uh, interesting. <clears throat> I would say the lifestyle is quite a bit different. Um, but uh, having maybe advanced a bit in years now, children, uh, it's definitely the lifestyle that I would uh, choose now instead of the military lifestyle where they send you a month or two months into the Congo at a time to do, go do your helicopter tours there. But flying-wise, uh, it, it's still an aircraft, still have checklists, you still have procedures. So quite a rigorous three-month conversion there to get into the airline flying side of things. But uh, I think, that, I mean, uh, with, without a doubt, having come through the Air Force, like you'd know, most of our fellow pupils, uh, mates, uh, they've got that solid training and there isn't much issues with transitioning into an airline type operation. So you have to uh, figure out uh, different types of operation, it's different um, style of flying, if I can call it that. It's still exciting and a lot to learn and, and three months doesn't, doesn't get you there all the way. <laughs> a couple of years on the line uh, actually gives you a bit more confidence, a bit more experience to, to really handle the operation as smoothly as you'd want to. It is a big operation. There's a lot going on. But uh, no, I think the Air Force training was, was definitely up to scratch to, to prepare us for that, as civilian training would as well. But uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a big camaraderie with, uh, within, in between the ex-Air Force guys sure. in the cockpit. There's always a lot to talk about, always uh, referencing when we, when we's. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's quite a treat if you do get a fellow ex-Air Force guy in the, in the seat next to you. Yeah, I see. And, uh, and so Marie's question earlier, she said, um, um, pilots have to have nerves of steel to handle airplanes. Uh, how do you cope? Do you think that you have nerves of steel? Well, I don't think I've got any more nervous steel than the next guy. Uh, but having gone through the training, they, they do train you for uh, any eventuality that, that could uh, come on your path. Uh, I would say handling the aircraft, yes, but that almost becomes like a, 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 a second nature. Mm -hmm. uh, which, what could stump you uh, of late is, you know, anything um, – 
superfluous to the operation. You know, difficult passengers, people that sure. maybe uh, a bit stubborn in the back, giving your crew grief to give them the support and uh, know that you've got each other's backs. Those type of things in the operation uh, is also quite challenging. I mean, uh, nothing on nerves or steel, but yeah, I mean, some good uh, interpersonal skills, um, some some just general life skills would assist you well in that as well. Okay, well, that's a good answer. We've got a couple more people saying hello. Jacques Allison says, hi, what operating system is running on the Boeing? Hopefully it's not Windows 7. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Jacques. It's awesome to have you. Uh, Tendu wants to know, Fran, do you prefer the A320 or do you think the 737 is better? That's a question we get asked a lot. Airbus or Boeing? Airbus or Boeing? And I think the answer should be, I'll take one of each. Thank you. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, my brother was also in the Air Force and he was on the fighter line. So I was in the chopper line. We were always a fighter, chopper, chopper, fighter. <laughs> now he's flying the Airbus and I'm flying the Boeing. So always going Airbus, Boeing, Boeing, Airbus. Okay. So, <laughs> so the feud continues. I think the one that you're flying is the best one. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, I know we've gone over time a little bit here. Thanks so much for joining, Fran. I really appreciate your time and your input. It's great to have you with us. It's great to have all the friends joining us as well last question from chris is how was your first sim training coming from the air force fran wow uh yeah that was that was quite a thing uh the thing that got me <laughs> the most the most unexpected uh was the rj85 sim in dublin and we're sitting on the ramp and all that stuff, uh, going through checklist procedures. You want to get everything right. The next thing is like, okay, instructor in the back. Okay, now we're going for pushback. And he pushes that button. And the whole aircraft starts moving back. And it's like, this is odd. So that was the weirdest thing for me uh, in the simulator, the pushback <laughs> procedure where obviously I haven't been part of that before. But yeah. it is busy. It's a four-hour session. It feels like 25 minutes and you are working. You are yeah, you you using on all your pillars that uh, you've built over the years, and yeah, you quickly find out where's your weaknesses. You have to adapt and and carry on. Sure, I can relate to that. Uh, I, I, when I left the Air Force, I went from that Astra to the Airbus 340 sim, and that was quite <laughs> quite an eye opener. It took me a good year to feel like I'd settled down with all the procedures and all the different manuals, the flight operations manuals, the books, the, you know, the company, the way. Airlines operate is quite different to Air Forces. Obviously, the discipline and the training and the SOPs that we were used to, that style of work comes through. But the immense volume of, of information that you have to know and have to be able to access at any time as an airline pilot, it's quite different. So uh, the last two questions. I've known you yeah. for a long time, but uh, I didn't realize that we, we've got that in common, uh, having gone from the caravan at the time, single prop to four-engine jet. So, yeah, you also went single prop to four-engine jet. <laughs> and it's quite a step up. <laughs> yeah. If you get an opportunity to get a little stepping stone for a year or two, I highly recommend it. It does just make it that much simpler, although we're both living proof that it is possible. Last two questions before we wrap up. I see Felty asking you, do you miss the helicopters and birds? How's it, Bird? Thanks for joining. Boeing software is 486 with DOS 3.0. He's not asking a question. He's just poking fun. That's a Boeing 777 and 787 pilot in the Middle East. Thanks for joining. Do you miss helicopters, Fran? I do. I do every time I, uh, I fly. Somebody asks me, still flying helicopters? Not at this stage. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, doing quite a bit of flying uh, before this whole world upset, doing up to maybe 80, 90 hours a month. There wasn't yeah. much left in it, and having to keep, keep the license current was uh, quite another thing. But I do miss it, the freedom of helicopter flying. There's nothing like it. Uh, I mean, 
if you're sitting there in the hub and you want to go up and back and to the left, you take the controls, you go up and back to the left, you move the helicopter there. So there's a, a amazing freedom that comes with helicopter flying. I miss it a lot. I'm sure you do. And uh, thanks so much for joining once again, Fran. Have a great day and hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high-performance team.